0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, NA, copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London,
0: I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This week, America has been forced to import baby formula from Switzerland.
1: We ask why the shortage has become so dire, and there's far more to it than the usual story of gummed-up supply chains.
0: And Turkmenistan's rulers have long had a penchant for micromanaging their citizens' lives. The new president's latest obsession? Cosmetic surgery. Laws banning Botox injections, nail extensions, and other such procedures are intrusively enforced.
1: But first, China reported 174 official new COVID cases on Sunday. 96 of them were in the capital, Beijing. They're small numbers to anyone but Communist Party leaders who are sticking resolutely to zero-COVID policies. In Shanghai, that's meant a stark two-month lockdown. At last, there are signs that numbers there are
2: declining. <laughs>
1: Official figures suggest infections in the city have been below 1,000 for eight consecutive days. In Beijing, though, the trend line has been upward, In other, less important Chinese cities, the response would be, has been, certain and swift. Quarantines of the infected, clearing out of buildings, harsh lockdowns. But the situation in the capital presents a different set of concerns.
2: Beijing is the preeminent symbol of power in China.
1: David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief.
2: China's communist leaders do not want worldwide headlines saying Beijing is locked down. That is because this is the political capital, it's where the big bosses live, this is where the wise leadership that has beaten COVID so far is based. But they don't want to leave things too loose in case they get the kind of scenes of chaos and thousands of cases a day that eventually force them to lock down the whole city of Shanghai. So they're walking a very fine line.
1: And what is it like to be in the capital at the moment?
2: Well, it's very strange. I mean, I've been in China since before COVID began, and we've been through waves of incredibly strict lockdowns and and deserted streets where people were really frightened at the beginning back in 2020. It's not as frightened as it was now, but we have to work from home in large amounts of the city, including where I am. The way that China controls COVID is high tech and low tech. There are guards everywhere checking what you're doing, but also this high tech aspect that you have to accept a lot of high tech surveillance. So if you go to a food shop or to a housing compound, constant recorded announcements nagging you to wear a face mask to scan this health qr code that's everywhere with your smartphone have your temperature taken stay at least a meter apart in addition to that we've all been told to work from home in most of the city including where i am i'm here with my two cats ollie and charlie and that's a worry too because if I get quarantined, taken off somewhere, is someone going to be able to feed them? Are they going to starve to death? We've even seen in some other cities, animals being beaten to death as potentially infected.
1: But that is still a contrast with Shanghai where people are in principle not supposed to move around at all.
2: That's right. So Shanghai has been under incredibly strict lockdown for more than a month. It is now slowly opening up, not as fast as state media and propaganda would have you believe. There are still a lot of people stuck inside their housing compounds. We have been much luckier so far because we've never had the kind of numbers that Shanghai had in terms of daily cases. We're still at kind of 50, 60, 70 a day. They were at thousands a day. We're in a regime of stay at home when you can. Don't go to parks, don't go to gyms, cinemas. All that stuff is closed. There's a lot of weight being put on constant, massive testing. And it's not just like a sort of quick lateral flow test. This is the proper swab down your throat nucleic acid test. I have had, I think, 23 so far this month And on Saturday, I think they said 16 million people had nucleic acid tests. So these kind of kiosks and cabins all over the streets with long lines of people waiting half an hour a day to get tested. And the streets are quiet. It's as if we're waiting to see if we get really locked down uh, like other cities have been.
1: So do you think that the way the, the party is going about things now can keep COVID under control?
2: So they're using techniques that were surprisingly effective at the beginning of COVID. A lot of other countries didn't think that you could just lock this virus down and beat it with just sticking people indoors. In 2020, in 2021, when they were facing the Delta variant, it worked. The problem is that Omicron is so unbelievably infectious that what they're trying to do has just not been tried by anyone else. They're now trying what they call dynamic zero COVID. So where I am in Beijing, that means anyone who tests positive, they then trace anyone who came near you or who came near those people sub close contacts and then potentially thousands of people will be put on buses and taken off to centralized quarantine sites away from their own homes in order to crush a single case and success is defined as avoiding any new cases popping up outside a known cluster what they call community transmission and in a city of 22 million people it is staggering labor intensive it's incredibly intrusive with electronic surveillance and Omicron is testing it to the limits. Now, we had a panic on Sunday when the cases hit 96 new cases in a day. By American or European standards, that's incredibly low. But by Beijing standards, that was a jump.
1: And you speak of the numbers as being the sort of guiding principle here. Can we believe them, given how the party has massaged other kinds of numbers in the past?
2: So if your guiding principle is that the Chinese Communist Party is perfectly capable of lying through its teeth out of self-interest that's a good place to start because at the beginning of the pandemic, they covered up the first wave of outbreaks in Wuhan, and that was shocking and disgraceful. And they've done this before. The one thing that means that you might be able to trust the basic numbers here in Beijing is that their entire strategy is based on telling you where every case is, saying, were you in the same shopping mall as this person who tested positive yesterday? This kind of transparency has been forced on them by their own contact tracing system. And so do we know everything that's happening in every military base or every prison? No, for sure we don't. There could be all sorts of horrors that we don't know about. But in Beijing, their strategy is based on maximum transparency about the movements of each individual infected person.
1: And what are the risks to the people epidemiologically, if you like, of this zero COVID policy and its potential to fail?
2: So Chinese leaders have said recently that if they were to follow an American style or a European style, just living with COVID policy, that you would see more than a million, maybe millions of people die. And that's probably true, above all, because they have really not done a great job of vaccinating the elderly. This country has more than 100 million people over the age of 60 who have not been properly vaccinated. And so if they just let COVID rip in this country, uh, particularly given the bad health of a lot of older people and the very weak hospital system outside the biggest cities, you could see huge numbers of deaths. So that's a real health risk. What the party doesn't admit is the extent to which their political decisions have made that health risk worse. They've not done a good job of vaccinating people. They have also refused to use the foreign mRNA vaccines like your Pfizer's and your Moderna's, basically because it's humiliating, but also for them, a national security risk to use a foreign vaccine. So we're using Chinese vaccines. There's older technology they're not as effective. And they have just been amazingly slow at doing the hard work of persuading very suspicious old people to get those shots. And as a result, they are stuck.
1: They've painted themselves into a a political corner as well as as a health one.
2: They have, because the Communist Party has spent the best part of two years boasting that their success in keeping COVID at bay proves that they are not just a more effective and competent, but a more benevolent system of government than stupid, selfish, decadent Western democracies like America. I mean... The idea that America has had a million people die from COVID is almost daily staple of the news here and the propaganda. And so that is so essential to their pitch to be a better form of government, that to have a failure now would be a massive humiliation. And this is an extremely important political year because at the end of the year, the Supreme Leader here is supposed to go for a third term of office. And Xi Jinping does not want his great triumph to turn into an embarrassing and deadly failure.
1: And what do you think the costs are to Mr. Xi and to China to maintain that approach?
2: The human and economic costs of this very strict approach are incredibly high. And this is the dilemma for the party. They have no good choices. If they let it rip, then millions of old people die. If they keep up these tight controls, then the economy is really suffering. You can see already weeks of lockdowns in Shanghai, which is a hugely important industrial base hugely important port. You're seeing worldwide disruption of supply chains of international trade. And so the leadership of China, they basically face only bad choices from now on. What they are signaling is that the political imperative to deliver that story about the Chinese Communist Party being in control and delivering stability is the most important. And we know that because we've seen incredibly emphatic statements from Xi Jinping, the top guy, saying that even to question or doubt the zero-COVID policy is forbidden. And so once that message goes out, every official understands, even if you have your own doubts about how sustainable this is in this most political of years, particularly in Beijing, China's most political of cities, we are not allowed to debate. We're just going to have to endure what comes.
1: David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. It continues to be a roller coaster ride in the markets. Twitter drama, crypto sell-offs, American indices slipping and global markets shuddering in response. How to make sense of it all? It's time again for listeners to pose the questions. What is it that you want to know about what's happening or what we might expect? Write to us at podcasts at with your questions for our business and finance experts. We'll answer as many as we can in an upcoming show. People have become accustomed in the past couple of years to shortages and absences of products on supermarket shelves. In some markets, it was flour and toilet paper. Now in others, it's cooking oil. And soon, in many more, it'll be grains. But one sharp shortage has gripped America. Powdered baby formula.
3: I just don't understand
2: why it's taking so long. It's May, and this happened in February. I started to travel when I realized that we were out of options here, and there was, nobody,
3: there was nobody around here that had anymore. We had tapped all our resources, so we started looking around the country.
1: After catching flack for being too slow to act, President Joe Biden authorized the military to use commercial aircraft to fly in supplies from abroad. America's Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, was there as the first flight arrived.
2: We will continue to work, uh, as the president has instructed us, to look for every opportunity to increase supply. The president understands all too well uh, the challenges, the stress, the worry that families have experienced.
1: This isn't happening for the same reasons that have become familiar, a pandemic, a wayward container ship, and now war in Europe. Then again, baby formula isn't really in the same category as many products.
4: Whereas shortages of things like cars or couches are an inconvenience for consumers, a lack of nourishment for babies creates serious risks to health.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor.
4: And so the Biden administration has swung into action in the last week or so. They've loosened restrictions on imports of formula, in fact, begun to fly in vast amounts on military jets. And they've even invoked the Defense Production Act to ensure that the domestic supply can be increased.
1: So let's wind back a bit. Uh, How bad is this shortage? What's behind it?
4: Well, as much as 45% of America's regular supply of baby formula is out of stock, even if you can get formulas, there's then problems potentially of switching from one to another if a baby has an underlying medical condition. And so that's why in in the last week, as this reached a critical mass, the problem that you had the Biden administration really going into overdrive trying to address the shortfall immediately using the defense production act to make sure that formula producers in America can get the basic ingredients that are necessary and then medium term looking for ways to make the market function properly
1: but what what is the source of the shortfall how how did things get this bad
4: the market has been getting tight for The better part of half a year already. Really, you can trace it to the pandemic. So you have people moving around the country, which meant that for retailers that are very used to having kind of quite a predictable demand in certain areas, suddenly found that they couldn't predict where people were, how much formula was needed. So that was the beginning of the problem. Then also the the kinds of supply chain snarls that have affected all kinds of industries have affected the formula industry as well. So Producers couldn't get the right ingredients, they couldn't get the right packaging, there were staffing problems as well. That affected both the production as well as the actual distribution of baby formula. And then the big, big blow came in February when Abbott, one of the big producers in America, was forced to shut down a factory in Sturgis, Michigan. There were indications that there might have been a bacteria outbreak related to its factory, a bacteria known as Cronobacter sakazaki. There were four infants who suffered this infection. They had all consumed formula from that factory. So as a first precautionary step, the Food and Drug Administration ordered that Abbott shut down that factory. That proved to be a decisive blow to the market and led to the ever-increasing shortfalls that we now have today.
1: So pandemic-induced supply snarls and, and a health scare, not the sort of thing that
4: many people are talking about, about market concentration and price gouging. One big factory outage shouldn't lead to half the baby formula shelves being out of supply. And I think the big thing that has received a lot of focus, quite rightly, is the industrial structure of the formula industry. Four companies control more than 90% of the market. The biggest by far is Abbott, which has more than 40% of the formula market in America, and it was of course the Abbott factory that was shut down. That then had quite dramatic knock-on consequences for supply throughout the country and and really it's symbolic of something that's been happening in industries up and down America. So more than 3 quarters of industries have become more concentrated over the past three decades. The baby formula industry is not an exception. I think one thing that has made it worse is that on top of that quite extreme concentration domestically, the FDA has very, very strict restrictions on the kinds of baby formula that can come into the country. The result is that about 98% of America's formula is produced domestically. So what you're left with then is an industry that domestically is not very competitive and is not exposed to foreign competition. And that means that when you have the problems that have been experienced over the past half year, there's just a lack of flexibility. It's difficult to get different supplies from different sources. So it's not then
1: about opportunism and, and price gouging. This is just, these are systemic problems in the industry.
4: I mean, look, at there There have been examples of people who've been very opportunistic buying up the limited supplies and then selling them for incredibly marked up prices on eBay. So, so there are instances of that. But as far as the big industry is concerned, the real issue is this extreme concentration. And I'd add there are quite big, complicating factors. So number one, in terms of the trade restrictions, the FDA is well-intentioned. They don't want to have something as important as baby formula coming into the country and causing problems, but clearly they've been too rigid. The second point is that the way that the government manages the industry, about half of the formula that's consumed in America goes to lower-income families through a government-run nutritional program. It's run on a state-by-state basis, and one of the things that the states do is to get lower cost, they negotiate single-sourcing contracts, whichever brand gets the contract for a given state, ends up basically dominating that state's retail supply of formula. So you've ended up with a highly concentrated industry, and that concentration has actually been aggravated by government policy.
1: And because this has been such a high-profile problem, some politicians have have seized on it as a, as a sign of corporate greed, but you're, you're telling me that's not what it is?
4: Well, look, I, I think this is where things do get a little bit silly. As far as some Democratic politicians are concerned. The idea is that this is an evidence of of just extreme corporate greed, that it's not just, you know, hitting the baby formula market, that in fact, this lies at the root of the high inflation that America is now experiencing. A group of senators, including Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, on May 12th, introduced a bill that would aim to prohibit any price gouging during, quote-unquote, abnormal market disruptions. Uh, they're also looking at price gouging as one of the reasons for the big increase in petrol prices uh, in recent months. And I think in you know, almost all these instances, you can say that kind of concern is not just misplaced, it actually just leads in the wrong direction in terms of policy conclusions. High prices are clearly a problem, but they're a symptom. They're not the cause of the problem. Indeed, as far as the market functions, they can be a signal that there is a problem, there is a a critical short supply that needs to be addressed, and it can actually stimulate that kind of production. So to the extent that the Democrats actually act on these sorts of concerns and try to block prices from going up, that can actually lead to much more serious shortages down the line. So, so far, this has primarily been tough talk and rabble-rousing. It's not actually led to concrete policy action. And I think we have to hope that it stays that way.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Simon. Thank
4: you, Jason. My pleasure.
0: Turkmenistan, to the north of Iran and Afghanistan, is mostly known for being a reclusive and eccentric dictatorship. One of the few times it made headlines was when the former president, Gorbanguli Berdi Mohamedov, appeared in a viral video. He was, alas, rapping with his grandson. In March this year, his son Sirdar took over leadership after a rigged election. — Any hopes his rule might prove less repressive have been quickly dashed, not least for Turkmenistan's women.
3: So there are some strange things going on in Turkmenistan right now, namely in the country's beauty salons.
0: Joanna Lillis writes about Central Asia for The Economist.
3: What we're seeing is that cosmetic procedures, um, things like Botox injections, but also things like eyebrow microblading and nail and eyelash extensions are off-limits to women. We're seeing these new rules suddenly introduced out of the blue and not written down anywhere, incidentally, whereby beauticians can be jailed for up to 15 days if they give the wrong type of manicure to women. And clients face swinging fines if they infringe these rules.
0: That seems a remarkable invasion of, of, of personal privacy. How did we get here? How did this start happening?
3: Well, I mean, in Turkmenistan, women have been treated like second class citizens for a long time. I mean, number one, it's a patriarchal society like most Central Asian states. Number two, it's a very dictatorial regime. And part of the regime's repressive policies involve kind of controlling women. Now, the former president, Gulban Guli M- Muhammad once banned women from driving effectively by having their driving license confiscated on trumped-up pretexts such as having faulty first-aid kits in their cars. But really, this is now being taken to a whole new level.
0: Where does this obsession with women's appearance come from?
3: I think perhaps what's behind it is that um, in Turkmenistan, life is supposed to be perfect. The state wants people to think that life is perfect, even though it's far from it. And so they kind of dream up this idealized version of womanhood that goes along with this uh, rose-colored spectacle version of what life is like in Turkmenistan. But this focus on women's appearances in Turkmenistan is only the tip of the iceberg. There are concerns in Turkmenistan about the curtailment of abortion rights. Rules that were actually passed under Mr. Berdi Muhammadov Sr., but only published last month, restrict abortion access to women who are less than five weeks pregnant. That is so strict that it is effectively an outright ban, campaigners say.
0: And are women able to push back against these strictures? Can they, can they protest?
3: Well, not really. It's certainly very difficult in Turkmenistan. In general, the government is simply too repressive and opponents often end up in prison uh, where they, they've been known to disappear for years on end. And they have in the past also been forcibly placed in psychiatric hospitals. So uh, public protest is very rare in Turkmenistan. And it's possible, of course, that the new president is focusing on women as targets of these repressive rules, perhaps as a way to uh, assert his authority in this repressive state. Perhaps he thinks women are an easy target. But really, there are rampant food shortages in Turkmenistan, shortages of basic things like flour and so on. Seder al should have more on his mind than targeting women's beauty procedures. He inherited a very long list of problems from his father, from these food shortages, To a currency that has a black market value that's a sixth of the official rate. There's always a chance that tackling all these problems that the president has inherited might distract him and give women a bit of a break from all this. But women at the moment aren't holding out much hope as all these repressive rules are enforced.
0: All right, Joanna, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much.
1: all for this episode of The Intelligence. As ever, let us know what you
0: think of the show at podcasts at And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.